Good morning and welcome to Ryzen. The House is expected to vote today on a bill banning Russian oil imports. It would also provide $14 billion in aid to Ukraine. The vote comes after President Biden moved to ban imported Russian oil and gas. According to data from 2021, the U.S. imported 672,000 barrels per day of crude oil and petroleum from Russia, which accounts for about 8% of all U.S. imports. Biden's announcement comes as U.S. gas prices hit a record high yesterday at over $4 a gallon. Now, gas prices have been surging for weeks, even before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, will likely continue to rise with Biden's ban on Russian energy. European oil giants Shell and BP have both agreed to step away from their business ties with Russia as well. Shell will halt all crude oil purchases, while BP said it won't enter into new business with Russian entities. Meanwhile, Russia has threatened to close its main gas line to Germany if Western nations ban Russian oil imports, warning of a $300 a barrel price tag. The EU currently relies on Russia for 40 percent of its gas and 30 percent of its oil. But people around the world are reeling economically. The war has driven wheat prices significantly. In Chicago, wheat prices jumped 70 percent this year alone and surpassed levels seen in 2008. And this trend spans across nations in Egypt, Turkey, Indonesia, and more, adding to global food insecurity. You know, the, one of the, the breadbasket of Europe is it, what yeah, they call it, it right? It absolutely is. And you know, one of the unheralded causes of the Arab Spring was speculation-driven spikes in wheat prices and the, and the kind of raising of, uh, of bread prices by a number to Tunisia and Egypt. And that's, that's actually the thing that brought people into the streets first, that you also had the fruit vendor who was uh, assaulted by police in Tunisia, and, and, you had other also, and you had the WikiLeaks exposures of corruption. So you had lots of different grievances going on, but it was, people forget it was the food prices, because that's the thing. That, that if, if people can't afford to eat, that's the thing that's going to bring them That's what they take the to street. the streets. Yeah. yeah. And so we don't know where this is headed, but these types of fluctuations are, are going to be incredibly socially disruptive. Oh, no question. Yeah, we're already seeing the vast disruption. Yeah, yeah I mean, war ripples like this, especially with such a you know, globally integrated mm -hmm. economy, what it, it, it's not just what happens in one part of the world. Well, that's just a conflict between them. You know, it, it, it harms the whole system because we're also integrated. We get our yeah. food from here and our oil from here and our and, you know, our other goods from here and the labor from here. And it's, it's all, that's and the financial sector is here. It's all it's all together. So the system is not the cat like the capitalist system doesn't want there to be war and conflict. The capitalist system wants reworking and trading and, and exchanging. It, and, and yet it produces. Money. Well, I don't think it Marx might call it a contradiction. Now, the government produces the conflict. The right, the, ca the the capitalists are not are not demand. The, the, the capitalist system is not demanding um, con you know, war between nations. It would prefer if there was not war between nations, so that they can better profit from each other's trade. And well, the the, the capitalist system requires constant growth, and sure. so naturally, constant growth is going to well. It wants end up by, but by growth, it wants franchises. It wants, right. it wants But yeah, there's agreements. there are many other causes like yeah. that are driving you know, that are driving this this precise war for sure. But yes, so in, go back to 2008 again. The the books of these financial institutions are all interlocked, and so that's why when the sub subprime mortgages, which is just one small piece of uh, of a bank's books, collapses that it has this ripple effect because you've got the counterparties that, that are then owed, you know, that owe collateral uh, because this subprime loan collapsed. And now, oh, we don't have that collateral. Oh, because I don't have that collateral anymore, 
now I can't make good on, on this piece. So the counterparty risk just cycles ever downward. And so it raises a real question of how much can you seize up a portion of the global economy before you get these uh, unforeseen kind of collapses in places mm -hmm. that you didn't necessarily expect them to. You know, in other words, you know, who, who's, whose book was so dependent on wheat futures that, that it's now approaching insolvency? Right. And who right. was depending on that, right. that organization that is now insolvent to back itself up? And all of a sudden, uh-oh, now do we do? Which, is, which is one domino. more reason, I think, that the globe has to, in its war fever, continuously look for off-ramps here. Mm -hmm. Because we don't know at what point this just wipes everything out. Right. And, and our strategy is just to hope it hurts them more than it hurts us. Right. But it still hurts it's us. It's still going to hurt us. <laughs> it still hurts. And we don't know how much it's going to hurt us. Right. Now, Vice President Kamala Harris and Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg held an event this week to focus on promoting electric buses amid the soaring gas prices. Many accused Harris and Buttigieg of being out of touch over their responses to the situation. Here's Vice President Harris. Imagine a future. The freight trucks that deliver bread and milk to our grocery store shelves and the buses that take children to school and, and parents to work. Imagine all the heavy-duty vehicles that keep our supply lines strong and allow our economy to grow. Imagine that they produced zero emissions. Well, you all imagined it. That's why we're here today. Because we have the ability to see what can be unburdened by what has been, and then to make the possible actually happen. And here's Mayor Pete's take on the matter. Clean transportation can bring significant cost savings for the American people as well. Last month, we announced a $5 billion investment to build out a nationwide electric vehicle charging network so the people from rural to suburban to urban communities can all benefit from the gas savings of driving an EV. Top it off, late-night host Stephen Colbert also chimed in on the skyrocketing gas prices and assured his audience he'd be willing to do whatever it takes at the pump because he has a Tesla. Today, the average gas price in America hit an all-time record high of over $4 per gallon. Okay, that stings, but a clean conscience is worth a buck or two. I'm willing to pay... It's important. It's important. I'm willing to pay $4 a gallon. Hell, I'll pay $15 a gallon because I drive a Tesla. He's making fun of himself. He's, yeah, he's, yeah. That's, that's, that nobody should. He, right. He's making fun of that mindset of people. Right. The, your, your liberal elites are like, oh, oh, yes. Well, what, what, you know, what does a banana cost? Eight dollars. Right. The Lucille Bluth Club. I think I played it in one of my radars yes. before. I love it. Uh, I, so good. I, I will say that actually this is relevant to what I was telling you about before the show started. My, my issue with, yes, well, let's build some great green infrastructure, whatever. The, the government can't even, in my oh, city... In tell, my, tell them about DuPont Circle, yeah. Right. In my, in my life, very, uh, you know, a man of simple, simple needs, <laughs> it would be great if the metro, the D.C. metro, which, you know, to move people... Most people call it subway, but for some reason, we call, DC, it the metro. We call it the metro. D.C. is a small city. It only needs to move people, not across some vast distance, but, like, like in a 10-mile radius. 
and it's terrible. It's always broken. So there's so Dupont Circle, the the the, the station that serves uh, my the headquarters of my other job at Reason. It's this gigantic escalator. The escalator is always broken, always broken, because they're unionized and they the union has it set up so that they'll only send the least experienced people to go fix it because the most experienced people have job protection and they don't have to do anything. That's true. And so they've been trying to build a canopy so that when it rains, it doesn't flood this long escalator that's really just stairs and right. cause everyone to die. We all share that goal. <laughs> build a canopy. They started it in. One of our producers sent me this. April 2019 is when they started it. Not done yet. And in fact, all they've done, they've, they've erected some grate that I guess the canopy will sit over. But so it's, it's a grate. So it's raining today. It's still raining down the thing. You could put up a, you could put up a, like a tent thing. God knows there's enough tents in the city right now. You could, you could bang this project out in an afternoon, a weekend. Government hasn't done it yet. They're going to shut down the metro for eight months over the, over the Potomac. You're not going to be able to take the yellow line directly to the airport for eight months because they're fixing something. The bridge or something. It's always on fire. It's always on fire. The metro's always on fire. Anyway, this is not completely related to what we're discussing, but this is my lack of faith in government projects that always take three times as long as they say, cost 10 times as much money, and, th and then, indeed, concerning the D.C. metro, then it's not even fixed at the end of the day. But I was walking up to the Woodley Park metro once, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden I hear a bunch of screaming and smoke coming out of the stairs. Yep. People pouring out. Yep. Like, yep. I think I'm going to walk. The difference, it, it, the, the New York subway has a lot of problems and like a lot of stabbings, uh, but it does get people, I think, where they need to go, yeah, basically. They have more trains, too. They have so a lot more one, trains. One busted, they There's one always coming. One. For the DC metro, yeah. sometimes you're waiting like 20 minutes for the next train. It's totally random. On, on the broad. It's cleaner. It is cleaner. More, more generally, though, I feel like a gas powered. Uh, transportation system and gas and and oil fueled heating and cooling uh, is not the best thing. It seems very wasteful. I think we can we can do better than just you, we can dream stuff. like we, Kamala Harris. We can you dream are, like Kamala you are, Harris. You're you're going along with her dream there. I am. Yeah. And and I get I get the argument that it is insensitive to talk about these things while people are paying mm -hmm. you know a hundred dollars at the pump. At the same time, the same political tendency that has insisted that we not move off of fossil fuels doesn't have as much ground to stand on to complain about the wild fluctuations in the price of mm -hmm. gas. Like, they, they, they wanted this system. They fought tooth and nail to prevent us from moving off of that system, despite all of the warnings, not just about climate change, but about national security. People kept, you know, the, the military has been saying for years and years and years that climate change is a national security issue, not just because of what the changing climate is going to do, but because of the way that the battle for scarce resources plays out geopolitically. And with Exxon and all the others pumping tons of money into the system, there has been a resistance to change that. And now we're headed toward $300 a barrel gasoline it, it is not, oil, it is not which would be like $10, $12. A ruthless murder, murdering dictators sit atop the world's right. oil reserves is not a, yes, that is not a situation for the future yeah. that works. I agree with that. And so, so during a Senate committee hearing on foreign relations yesterday, Senator Marco Rubio uh, was questioning, um, what's her name, Victoria Newland, and got this answer from her about biological and chemical weapons. Well, um, I only have a minute left. Let me ask you, um, 
Does Ukraine have chemical or biological weapons? Uh, Ukraine has uh, biological research facilities, which, in fact, we are now quite concerned Russian troops, Russian forces may be seeking to uh, gain control of. So we are working with the Ukrainians on how they can prevent any of those research materials from falling into the hands of uh, Russian forces should they approach. I'm sure you're aware that the Russian propaganda groups are already putting out there all kinds of information about how they've uncovered a plot by the Ukrainians to release biological weapons in the country and with NATO's coordination. If there's a biological or chemical weapon incident or, uh, or attack inside of Ukraine, is there any doubt in your mind that 100 percent it would be the Russians that would be behind it? There is no doubt in my mind, Senator, and it is classic Russian uh, technique to blame on the other guy what they're planning to do themselves. Well, um, I only have a minute left. Let me ask you. Um, classic Russian move to steal another country's biological weapons and then use them against them. It's like right. a, you could hear the record player stop when he sh they, kind of shocked him by saying, Oh, yeah, actually, they, they, are, they do have a biological research lab. Russia plans to use chemical weapons. They're probably manufacturing their own and are going that, to use if, them. If, if you were I planning doubt. an attack, you would probably... Yeah. Plan, step one would not be have other countries Why make weapons. Why is Ukraine weapons. doing research into chemical weapons? Or biological weapons. Biological but, weapons. Excellent question. Yeah. Excellent. What do you mean by biological... Sorry, I'm not a munitions expert. By biological weapons, do they mean like... Like COVID? <laughs> like the fact Chemical that, weapon right. is like gas and... If she just said they have a biological research facility and she just said that generically at a pharma conference, okay, maybe they're making some cancer drugs. Right. It was we'll an find answer. out we fund it, right? right. I bet, I bet, oh, with uh, thousand sure percent we fund, we fund it. Yes. Of course we fund it. Dr. But, Fauci wrote the check himself. <laughs> but the fact that... Well, this would be the defense side. Because sure. the fact that he asked a question about biological weapons and elicited that answer means that she's not talking about cancer drugs here. No. Yeah, interesting. There's some real rocks getting overturned. Uh, but I, I, I'm sure it's just Ukraine. I'm sure that's the only country oh, yeah. where, and where let's we're just, doing that. Do we have to just randomly ask about other countries? Like, hey, Congo, by the way, are there any U.S.-funded... That truly is the plot of, like, season seven of 24. Because <laughs> apparently they're not going to say anything unless they're asked about it. And Rubio afterwards was probably like, why did I ask that question? Yeah, well, yeah. Thank you, Marco Rubio, though. We appreciate the he transparency. He didn't read the room. That's great. And then he quickly was like, but, but, but hold on, hold on. But it would be Russia that would use Naturally. the biological weapons that Ukraine is making, right? She's like, oh. Yeah, that's the Russians. You know how you know those Russians. Those tricky Russians. Always out there, there using our biological weapons. Shame on them. Up next, we'll share some updates regarding Ghislaine Maxwell's request for a retrial. This is getting interesting. Stay tuned. A juror for Ghislaine Maxwell's felony sex trafficking trial testified that he did not lie when he failed to disclose past sexual abuse on a pretrial questionnaire. He simply, quote, made a mistake. Juror number 50 told a Manhattan District Court judge yesterday, quote, this was one of the biggest mistakes I have ever made in my life. I did not lie in order to get on this jury. 
After Maxwell's conviction, juror number 50 told Reuters that he recalled his own experiences as a childhood sexual abuse survivor in order to ease other jury members' concerns about inconsistencies in the testimonies from some victims of Maxwell's. He said, quote, when I shared that, they were able to come around on the memory aspect of the sexual abuse, unquote. Juror 50 was questioned for an hour yesterday by a judge who did not indicate when she would decide whether to grant Maxwell's request for a retrial. And the reason I believe, not that it really matters, that uh, this juror is telling the truth in, the, in having made a mistake is that if he purposely lied on the sheet, he would not then have gone out and given public interviews Talking, well, about, talking about how he had helped sway the jury based on a thing that he knew he had lied about on his questionnaire. I mean, so, probably not, but... but what, what kind of a... Well, he just, I don't know. We don't I mean, know there's a person. lot of people. He might not be a very <laughs> smart person. <laughs> this, this, okay, that's might, fair enough. You know, he might be a, a, a kind of self-aggrandizing, reckless character. That's, that's uh, certainly didn't possible. realize how this would come back to... Or you could be right, I don't know. It's like but a 50-page questionnaire. Where you're like, oh, jury duty, oh my God. No, 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 yes, no, 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 yes. Maybe. Yeah. But it's a mess. It doesn't matter. Like, Huge mess. It, 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 that only matters, it right. doesn't matter at all because he was granted immunity for his testimony. So he's not getting charged with anything. So therefore, it doesn't matter whether he did it on purpose or not. For Ghislaine Maxwell, the only relevant fact here is that she and her lawyers were not privy to. The, this information, which was on the sheet, you could say like, "Hey, well, this isn't relevant." Well, it is relevant because it's on the it's on the questionnaire, right? And they obviously would have challenged, stricken having, him, right, or tried to strike him because she's accused of doing the thing that he was victimized right. of, with. Uh, so, I'm not a judge, but it seems pretty clear that this is going to a new trial, no? Yeah, I don't know how you could overlook this. I mean, this Especially is... Especially with him saying that he was instrumental in swinging the jury. I know. He was bragging about how important it was. Yeah. And, right, and he... The exact thing that he, that he used this to make the argument it is so key to the, the, the inconsistencies in right. people's stories is generally something that if you're accused of a crime, your attorneys will try to mm -hmm. exploit on your behalf because inconsistencies allow for acquittals. They, right. you know, they raise doubt. Reasonable that, doubt. That reasonable doubt standard. So, but it, at least in the sort of new understanding or, or public understanding of how sexual misconduct works, I'm actually not totally in agreement necessarily with the activist belief, the victim's rights belief around this concept, that it's like very, this crime and this crime alone, the inconsistencies are, are, are part of it and actually make it more likely if they're inconsistencies because they're so, I actually don't really know that I buy any of that, but it is very much part of, of, of the training and the activism around how victims of sexual misconduct behave so that, that he was saying, in my experience, I had these inconsistencies because I suffered this and this is normal and expected right. actually, you could see how that could play a very important role right, now you're voting in getting a jury there. His own, in some yeah. ways, you're voting to acquit his attackers. Right. In front of him. Right. Like vicariously by acquitting Maxwell. Yeah, I don't know how you could reach any other conclusion but to give her a new trial. This is, people, never, people rarely risk trials because the, the, the sentencing is so, the, the, the success rate is astronomical for the prosecution. The sentencing is so severe, but this, every now and then you risk it and it pays off because somebody screws up. This is just, this is a, this is just a mistake. 
genuine mistake, you know, the harm of the of the false witness or something. And in this, and the advantage then to the defense in the second trial is now they have insight both into what the right. prosecution has and doesn't have, but also into what created some doubt in the jury pool, yeah. the jurors themselves. And so in a second trial, they will go hard at all of these inconsistent memories. Yeah, this is great for the defense. Obviously, it's great for the defense because the prosecution had won, and now the, right. the victory is being taken away. So that's bad. But it's also on, on second trial, retrial, great, always great for the defense. They, yeah. they, the conviction rate drops precipitously. And the prosecution will at least know they need multiple survivor advocates and slash experts on the stand yeah. talking about memory issues. But, but, then you, but then you make the central question in the jurors' minds, the memory issues, and then that's where their reasonable doubt starts to, starts to seep back in. So maybe, maybe they come with a much better plea deal rather than roll the dice. Yeah, that could be. you don't want to be the prosecutor. Like, prosecutors care about scalps. Yeah. And conviction rate. Conviction rate. They want 99% conviction and rate. And moving up, yeah. moving up the political if ladder. If you squander, if you screw up a high-profile case, that could end your career. If you're the person who let Ghislaine Maxwell walk, yeah. forget it. You're done. Yeah. You're, you're going you're gonna to be an associate partner at some, like, mid-level yeah. white shoe firm. You'll, have, you'll, you'll, you'll only make $600,000 a year. <laughs> and you? But you, you don't get to will, run for, for uh, state attorney general. You can't run for attorney general. People will murmur when you walk into the country club. You know, it's just a, absolutely devastating for people. <laughs> and so uh, they might just say, you know what, let's cut our losses and plead this one out. Yeah. And then they can, because then at that point you can say, what are we supposed to do about this juror? Like other lawyers will be like, uh, by the grace of God. You know, that right. Can, like, yes, to, to be completely clear, the prosecution didn't really screw this. It's not a they fumble. Didn't they didn't do anything right. wrong. This person, I guess they said, read the questionnaire very, 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 very carefully next time. Or, but, yeah, or don't brag but to have this person did. make a mistake, right, make a mistake, and then have that mistake be very important to jury deliberations, and then publicly explain that. How important it was. Oh, man, people, Thanks. people. I don't know. I, don't, I tend to not read government forms very closely either, so maybe there but for the grace of God, go I. Oh, for right. sure. And when for I get sure. jury summons in the mail, I just throw them out. <laughs> Then my, got, my wife, who's a much more law-abiding citizen than I am, who works for the government, she, she doesn't like when I do that. I got a but. grand jury summons. Thank God I was living in Vermont at the time. And I could prove it. What it, was that It was mean? a D.C. one. Oh. Because, so, you know, sometimes you get on these D.C. grand juries. That, like, jury duty in D.C., fine. Right. Grand jury duty in D.C.? Could be months. I mean, no of one, your no life. one would ever put me on a jury as soon as like, I don't even have to take the questionnaire. Would just be like, "Do you think the government has a right to exist?" And I'll say, "No. <laughs> this is all. This is all illegitimate." Like next. Okay. Bye. This person's innocent. I'm just gonna wear my. I'll wear my like legalized heroin T-shirt or something. That'll be it for me. But next, we'll weigh in on the expanding list of Western corporations suspending their operations in Russia when rising returns. Coca-Cola and Pepsi are just some of the latest large companies to suspend all business in Russia. Yesterday, they were joined by McDonald's and Starbucks, adding to the rapidly expanding list of Western corporations looking to sever any and all ties to Russia. In fact, the Washington Post's Jeff Stein thought it more apt to name firms who have not withdrawn their operations. 
Coca-Cola, McDonald's, and Starbucks have made their announcements shortly after this list was made. As of this morning, Bridgestone Tires, Papa John's, and Marriott, among others, still haven't acted. Uh, they're yep. going to have to yeah. change the, uh, what is it, the Coca-Cola song? I'd like to buy the world a Coke. Not you, <laughs> Russia. Not Russia. Not you, Russia. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Does every corporation under the sun need to take a stance on this? Is right, really, we went through this before. Is it really necessary? Uh, and this I was, say that about every political issue. I say that about ones that go against what I, th you know, when they need to care about whatever the social conservatives are mad about, and then it makes them mad that they care, and it makes the other side mad that they don't care. Seems like they're in trouble either way. I don't know. And this was a professor who you know, put this list together, so it wasn't that Jeff Stein was, was out chasing Pepsi-Cola around the world. Uh, but it, it is a brand new development in world politics that you have. I mean, it's, you had you know hints of this in the past, but never never before in such a kind of unified uniform mm -hmm. way and moving in such rapid fashion. To McDonald's was a fascinating one because they're 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 not pulling out of the country. They have what nine thousand whatever franchises there, but what they're doing is they're they're closing them, which is also interesting. What's the franchise model mean exactly? Like if you're a Russian kind of franchise owner, you kind of, you have bought the franchise from McDonald's. They must and now retain the right to order you to close it. I mean, it. clearly, like they, they wrote the, they must have written in to the contract somewhere yeah. that they retain the right to shut you down. They said, well, and because the McDonald's, uh, I just know that from watching, what, the McDonald's movie or whatever, right? They have a very precise, like, you can't, if you own a McDonald's, you can't change the menu, right? right. You have to, your ownership rights don't give you, it's not your own personal little McDonald's. That you, like, it's all, it's designed by corporate what it looks like and what the menu is and how long it takes to get food and how you treat it, so it's not. Offer valid at participating locations. Right, right. But so, and that's true, and that's right. true of all fast food right. places. And so what they're going to do is they're, sh they're, they're shuttering for a short term as a protest, right. going to go dark, and they're going to continue to pay their employees, which is good. Uh, but that's you know, it's, but the the money that they're paying is rapidly evaporating in value. What what they can buy with that money is rapidly escalating in cost, and not just wheat, but but everything. And you do have a spiraling economic situation uh, that is you know leading toward like total collapse. Yeah. There was this one, you know. You know, Russian analyst who was saying June is our deadline for this war, because by June there will be nothing left. Like we, we will be finished by then. They just, Russia will be finished. Yeah. there'll be nothing left of Ukraine by then either. But right, all the buildings will be destroyed. Yes, much right. of the population if, will if, have fled. If they continue, lots of people will be dead. If they continue like this, yes, it will be an absolutely desiccated landscape, just completely mowed down. The situation will will resemble Afghanistan in many ways by yes. then. Yeah. Yeah. So good, good reasons to try to find, find resolutions, yeah. a resolution to this. I, just, I, and I wish I could come up with a more, what the rule should be for, for how I would like companies to handle political issues. You know, part of me wants to say, well, obviously they can do whatever they want, but what should they do? Part of me wants to say they should really just not get involved. Because like you, you cl uh, 
quickly uh, stumble down the staircase where they have to take a stance on everything, and then they end up domestically like, oh no, we're you know boycotting Florida because they're taking Beloved off the curriculum or something, right? That kind of mm-hmm. stupid that makes conservatives really mad. That I often also think is stupid and performative and. Because then it's turning a blind eye to abuses in other parts of the world. Well, you operate where you know gay people are literally stoned to death, right? What does it matter what Florida or Ohio's policy is? But this is a case where a, one nation is invading another. It's a seriously bad, evil thing. There's not a, both sides to this one. So maybe that is the right thing to do, is to not provide any moral sanction or endorsement of it. But, th- but then are you really doing that if you're just starving the people, if you're just depriving the people who have no say in this, who don't sh- didn't choose this, who are not complicit in it, at least not largely complicit in it. Maybe they're slightly complicit in it because they don't rise up just like we are somewhat complicit in our government's um, crimes. And we have a kind of a larger say in what our government does, although not really entirely what Say does not one person policy. have? Yeah. There's, yeah. No, there's no democracy when it comes to foreign policy. Right. So same it's, with, I mean, it's same with the Russian people here. You can poll them and you can poll the U.S., but Putin made this decision without consulting basically anybody. Right. Uh, but you're right that you know, multinational corporations have an interest in countries not launching world wars. Like that's not, They'd really rather right. you didn't. Right. That's not great for business. And so if, you know, if... These multinational companies are acting in their own self-interest. You could see an argument that this is deterrent to a future uh, superpower launching an invasion against uh, somebody. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll, depends on which superpower. I mean, I think they about. mostly do this because it's a kind of commercial for them, or to attract a certain kind of progressive customer who care. You know, who who, who cares about. Ukraine or cares about whatever, cares about people's lives, and they want to, we're a good, upstanding company. We could be making money right now, but, but because this is so horrible, we are going to choose to not make money to show solidarity with the cause. So maybe you'll think more kindly of McDonald's or Starbucks next time because we're doing yeah. the right thing here. I think that's their Also, thinking. so many of these companies live at the pleasure of government regulators. That's true. And so let's, I don't know what price Waterhouse cooper has been up to. Uh, and I think PricewaterhouseCoopers would prefer not to have a hostile f- uh, federal government kind of looking through the books of what exactly they have been up to in a more fine-toothed way than they do now. And so if PwC takes some massive stand against the U.S. and, and either stays neutral or and, you know, keeps its operations up in Russia going, then they might find themselves on the business end of some type of regulator who finds something that... Yeah. Because these they, they work... PwC, all of these auditors work with, you know, the, the, the worst of the worst around the world, and the worst of the world, hey, they need accountants too. But a, an aggressive auditor, aggr- aggressive government regulator could, you know, and that's just one example. This is what animates so much bad behavior by tech companies, or behavior that I don't agree with, right. you don't agree with, Kim doesn't agree with. Uh, is there fear of being regulated or punished by whoever's in charge if they don't out. do, if they don't give the Biden administration exactly the COVID or the misinformation policy it wants, then they're going to be Lena punished. Lena Khan might be sicked on them. Right, yeah. exactly. So it's not a, the axe hanging over the head. Yeah. It's not a good way to live for anyone, including for companies sometimes. Next on Rising, Max Alvarez and Denise Long join us to, uh, on a panel to discuss a staggering new study on how lead caused, you know, lowered half the country's IQ level. Stick with us. 
lead is back in the headlines again. And of course, you remember the 2014 ongoing Flint, Michigan water crisis that exposed the city's drinking water was contaminated with poisonous with the poisonous neurotoxin. Now, just this week, a new study published in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences uncovered that leaded gasoline caused half of the population in the U.S. to develop a lower IQ. In the study, they concluded, quote, we estimate that over 170 million Americans alive today were exposed to high lead levels in early childhood. That's over half the population. Here to talk about the new finding is Max Alvarez. He's host of the Working People's Podcast, editor-in-chief at The Real News Network, and author of The Work of Living. And also we have with us Denise Long. She's a business consultant and a contributor at Newsweek. Welcome to you both. Good to be Thanks, here. Guys. So, Max, how big a problem is this? Obviously, you know, this is one of the, as far as I can tell, this is one of the uh, hidden sort of underrated issues with crime as well. Uh, did lead, like, quite frankly, drives people insane or makes them angry and makes them uh, less intelligent, uh, you know, negatively impacts their lives and the lives of people around them in so many ways. And, it, you know, it wasn't until recently we even begun to try to make efforts to de-leadify our world. Uh, you know, what do you make of this? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's obviously quite difficult to sort of draw um, conclusive correlations from kind of like basically what sort of social ripple effects this has. I mean, to your point, Robbie, we do know that, you know, that this type of poisoning actually uh, hurts lower income, predominantly black and brown uh, communities more uh, in this country because they're maybe living in um, cheaper apartments that have uh, lead in it that uh, are owned by landlords who basically don't really do anything about that lead, even if there are local and state and national laws in place. That's certainly the case in cities uh, like here in Baltimore, a majority black town where there are uh, still quite a few residences with lead paint and such um, but the majority of lead poisoning comes from like pipe contamination like in Flint also in places like Philadelphia the Philadelphia Inquirer did a big study about this recently and, and, and the findings I think were quite horrifying and so there probably are this the, the, there probably is this sort of web of unexpected uh, sort of ripple effects on how that impacts people's lives and and uh, the ways that that manifests in our society and those I can't necessarily speak on as much what I can speak on is kind of the what the point that you made at the top about how bad this is right the kind of hidden poisoning that happens all the damn time in this country I know that it's something like climate change that we're used to just kind of putting out of our heads but if you actually look and survey the landscape you will be I think rightly shocked and horrified I still remember the commercials for Roundup Herb Herbicide. Red Hill, uh, the Navy's um, uh, facility in Hawaii, just got shut down because it was mass poisoning military families and civilian families. And Native Hawaiians had been like protesting this for years. And finally, the government shut it down last week. We know about Flint. Navajo Nation was poisoned by uranium mining, and people are there still getting cancers and dying all the time, and we haven't done crap about it. There's a there's a passageway in Louisiana called Cancer Alley because of petrochemical contamination and the high levels of cancer that people have there. Google Talavast, Florida, a black town that was poisoned by manufacturing weapons-grade 
beryllium. I reported in Wisconsin last year and talked to farmers in um, rural Wisconsin who were fighting the factory farming industry, which poisons waterways all over the place in North Carolina, in Iowa, in Wisconsin. We have microplastics to worry about. We have fracking still poisoning people in places like West Virginia. We have oil spills all the time. Like in my home of uh, Southern California, there was a massive one in Huntington Beach. There was just one in Ecuador. So it's it's happening everywhere and we're not really doing anything about it. And we're just kind of slowly boiling and accepting that this is the way it has to be, but it doesn't. Yeah, and, and Denise, in, in this particular study, there's also a corporate power and a racial justice lens that you can see it through in, in a couple of different senses. One is that uh, leaded gasoline was unnecessary. It was slightly cheaper for the industry uh, to continue using it as long as it possibly could. And so they marshaled all of the lobbying resources that they could to stave off efforts by the public, by consumer advocates, by environmentalists to say, look, you don't actually need leaded gasoline. All you have to do is make a couple tweaks to the engine and you can use unleaded gasoline the proof for that is that we've been using unleaded gasoline for 25 years now, and cars are running just, just fine. And so that was decades' worth of unnecessary leaded gasoline getting pumped into the air for no reason except a few pennies of profit on these corporate ledgers. The, the racial justice lens is that when I read about this study, I, end, I feel personally lucky to have grown up in a rural area. Because as the study talks about, it was in cities where people were constantly huffing all of these leaded gasoline fumes. You just, it's a smell, it's the smell of the city in the 70s and 80s. Who were living in the cities in the 70s and 80s and post, you know, the collapse of the manufacturing industry? Largely black populations. And so the, the combination of those things did have a disproportionate, I think, effect on black communities here in the U.S. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, I, I appreciate the nuance that you brought to that, and I have to amplify what you, Ryan, and what Max said. So, Ryan, I too feel very fortunate that I spent most of my my time, uh, I was born in the 70s, but um, it, most of my time in the 70s and the very beginning of the 80s uh, in a rural environment. We never owned a car, and you know it, we lived in, in the country of a two-stop light town. So even within town, when we occasionally went, there wasn't, we weren't as exposed. Uh, you, you know, you mentioned the corporate piece to this and it it is amazing and disturbing to me the way in which our federal government has neglected its absolute responsibility to tend to the health and well-being of the American citizens. So when I read this story, as well as some other stories about the prevalence of lead poisoning in the black population specifically, because while we know that we often marry black and brown populations together, what we know is the black population, black children are at greatest risk for this lead poisoning. You know, when I read the story, I thought about Tom Cotton's call to action to uh, representatives and to corporate interests. And what he said, is we are a nation with an economy and not an economy with a nation. His call to action was about addressing immigration, but also about corporations feeling some sense of responsibility to how they treat the American citizen as a worker, but I would say also as fellow citizens, also as citizens and humans of this country. 
And the way our government has neglected its, uh, I think, core responsibility to take care of home rather than trotting around the world trying to take care of everybody else uh, is really bored out in this story. Max, I remember reading when the Flint crisis was going on that actually the levels of lead that everyone was quite reasonably concerned about in Flint were actually perfectly within the standard that everyone would have been consuming in their drinking water up until like recent history. So, so that, that, that alarmed me to know what, what, what we are now very concerned about going on in Lent was just, was just normal for basically everyone until, until recently. And then I, I think about all the, the impact that could have had on various, you know, social ills that we've suffered for the last half century or century. You know, it's um, it's an interesting point because I think that um, as is often the case, right, um, Flint was not necessarily where this story started. It's certainly not where it ended, right? You can look at all the the list of examples that I gave before. Again, like that that mining that was happening in Navajo Nation was happening, you know, decades ago, and people have been dying for can uh, from cancer as a result of it for you know ever since. But I think that there was sort of like this perfect storm that uh, converged on Flint, um, which was a deindustrialized town, which um, had you know a big uh, impoverished black. Uh, population that was hurt most by this. You had uh, people like Rick Snyder kind of famously, you know, pressing the button to switch the waterways. And you just had like all this sort of, the, the more you dug into the story, the more horrifying it got. But what I have heard from folks um, that I've talked to around the country, not just the farmers in Wisconsin, but people living in um, places like, um, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, cities and towns and even rural uh, towns in or all across America, they're saying, we have the same problem here. We're getting poisoning. Our water is brown and like, you know, no one's doing anything about it. You could set our water on fire. It smells. It, it it's, it's something that we just, yeah, again, kind of accept or hope that we can kind of be lucky enough to uh, huddle ourselves up in a certain pocket where that contamination isn't happening. But it is also something, this is the last point that I'll make, it's something that working people in this country have to endure all over the place. I just talked to New York demolition workers who are being asked by union busting companies to illegally remove asbestos from um, uh, uh, job sites, and they have that on film. I've talked to a, a retired silver miner from my book, um, the Work of Living, uh, which was a book about how workers have experienced COVID. And he said something that I'll never forget because we didn't actually talk about COVID until the very end of that interview. And he said, you know what? More people here die of silicosis because they worked in the mines than uh, anyone's going to die of COVID. So honestly, we're not that worried. We're dying already. And that just really, that that's the reality that we're living in. Right. And, and we're going to have to, we're being told we have to leave it there. But I wanted to underline one point of Denise is that it's it's quite a staggering coincidence that the gentrification of American cities can be dated almost precisely to when lead was banned and the air started being cleared up in, mm. in those cities. But uh, like Denise, magic. Just like magic. How about that? Amazing how that works. Denise and Max, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Next, we want to highlight some important new reporting from the Real News Network. Now, one year ago, 40-year-old Evan Seafried committed suicide. His family is now suing Kroger, where he worked for two decades. 
They allege Evan was bullied, harassed, and sabotaged by store managers to the point that he suffered a, quote, transient episodic break, unquote, and took his own life. The allegations are just horrifying. In one example, Evan's family says after he helped two female employees file sexual harass com- harassment complaints against a supervisor, he received texts with child pornography. Evan also believed he was being followed and stalked outside his home by coworkers. Joining us now to tell us more about this case is Max Alvarez. He's host of the Working People's Podcast, editor-in-chief of The Real News Network and author of The Work of Living. Thanks for coming back, Max. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, uh, please tell us more about this story. I don't know a- anything about it. You know what happened, and and why are you bringing it to uh, national audiences' attention? Yeah, well, I mean, I first want to start by thanking uh, you guys at Rising for lifting up this story. Um, it's one that I have been reporting on at the Real News and at my podcast, Working People. Um, I've been talking to the folks involved. I'm deeply invested in the story, and it's been very difficult to get national attention for it. There was an original Washington Post article that was published in July, but after that, it's been a couple of local news spots. It's been a few independent podcasts like mine, like Retail Warzone, Radio Free Amanda, but um, the more attention we can get to this, the better, because it is a horrifying story in and of itself, but it's also uh, indicative of much larger problems that working people across the country are facing every day. As you guys mentioned at the top, this day last year, um, Evan Seyfried uh, took his own life after, uh, according to a lawsuit that has been filed by the Seyfried family, um, and and folks can read the, the text of that lawsuit filing, it's available online, and I would just preface everything that I'm saying here with like, this is what the lawsuit alleges, but if you talk to the family, if you talk to people who worked with Evan, if you talk with the people who are organizing um, the Justice for Evan Coalition, who are holding a national day of action today in state houses across the country, you will hear for yourself, you know, like the kind of person that Evan was, um, how unlike him this seemed, and how brutal the treatment he allegedly received from two store managers in particular at this Milford, Ohio Kroger store um, to the point that he took his own life this time last year. So I talked with Evan's family back in September. And if you are able to, I encourage you to listen to that because you can hear them talk about their son, about who he was, um, you know, and, and also how he saw the changes in Kroger having worked there for 19 years. They explicitly say once the new CEO, Rodney McMullen, came on, I think that was around 2014, Evan started noticing that things at the store were changing. They were much more profit focused. They didn't care how management was abusing workers or or the work paces that were increasing as long as sales were going up. So they actually say that this is a product of corporate culture changes that not only kind of created the sort of conditions for these two store managers who allegedly like unleashed a six month long campaign of terror where they deliberately uh, tortured this poor man um, because he was uh, like 
talking to HR about uh, alleged abuses in the store, including standing up for fellow co-workers who were being harassed. He was, um, you know, following the rules for COVID safety guidelines and, and he was teased and bullied by his managers. He was called Antifa for wearing like a mask. That's not because this is a political situation. It's because they were trying to isolate him. They were trying to make him feel marginalized and they succeeded. And when Evan reached out to Kroger corporate, when he reached out to the regional manager, when he reached out even to his union steward, they abandoned him. They failed him and no one gave him the help that he needed and eventually he was so isolated and terrified that he, uh, according to his family, suffered this transient episodic break, took his own life in his childhood home, and his family for the past year has been struggling to pick up the pieces while an incredible coalition of community members and family uh, friends and volunteers from around the country have been trying to demand justice for Evan and uh, an end to the scourge of workplace bullying. Besides the specific change in the CEO at Kroger, what, what else drove the, the culture change at the corporation and, and what could drive it back the other way? You know, I think um, it's, it's a combination of things, right? Because another part that I think a lot of folks who have worked in, you know, retail or, you know, companies uh, like Kroger that have been expanding rapidly gobbling up subsidiaries like this is one thing that's come out of this story is that Kroger has been buying up other grocery chains as much as it possibly can so chances are you are shopping at you know like a a Kroger owned grocery store which has made Kroger one of the top 10 private employers uh, in terms of size in this country. But that sort of drive to serve shareholders, to increase um, sales, which as we know, we saw a big boom in over the course of the pandemic because a lot more people weren't going out to eat. They were eating at home. They were relying on gig workers to do a lot of that shopping for them. But, you know, grocery stores saw a big boom over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, as far as corporate is concerned, that's all gravy. But that also means that, you know, Kroger or any corporate office that is so focused on serving its shareholders is going to have less of a vested interest in acknowledging, let alone uh, expending resources to do anything about uh, hiring practices that allow people like Shannon Frazee and Joseph Pig, the two managers who are named in this lawsuit, who allegedly um, orchestrated this this conspiracy campaign to torture Evan, according to the lawsuit filings. Um, this the the same practices that kept um, these managers from really being um, dealt with or or disciplined when Evan stepped up and um, said that one of them was committing sexual harassment, um, and also you know like the 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 reaction from HR itself, right? Like you're gonna be way less invested in dealing with something like this if your focus is on increasing profits. So there, there are a lot of ways that this has ripple effects from the corporate office all the way down to the shop floor. But what Kroger needs to remember is it is people like Evan who make that money for you. It is people like Evan who have given years of their lives and Evan was such a dedicated worker and he was sabotaged. That's part of why he had this episodic break. He took pride in his work and he knew that the managers uh, that were terrorizing him could sabotage him so that he got, you know, failed on a regional audit that it was after he failed that audit after having a completely spotless record for 19 years at the store that he was so worried they were going to win and they were going to like 
you know, paint him as someone who um, was looking at child pornography that was being sent to his phone. He felt so alone and isolated and he did not deserve this. And the family did not deserve this. And the thing is, is that the family didn't even know how bad it was because this is what workplace bullying looks like. There is a way that this unfolds and so many people just suffer in silence. And so I would say to anyone watching, please research this story. Please, please look up the Justice for Evan Facebook page and Twitter page, but also check in with your coworkers. Even if it doesn't look like they're suffering, just let them know that you're there because so many people are suffering in silence and Evan's death, you know, really highlights just the incredible stakes of of ensuring that people have uh, and 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 can live up to the right that Americans are supposed to have for a safe work environment. That is not what Kroger created. The union did not step in to help him. More people than one failed Evan, and now he's no longer here, and the family will never be the same again. What is is happening right now? Is there uh, is there ongoing lawsuit or what's the status of that? Yeah, so um, the family did file a lawsuit against Kroger. They named Kroger um, in the lawsuit. They named CEO Rodney McMullen. They named the two store managers, Shannon Frazee and Joseph Pig. Um, that lawsuit has been kind of slowly moving through the courts. Um, there was even a point, so I, I, as you guys mentioned at the top, I recently interviewed um, Jana Murphy from the Justice for Evan Coalition, who said that the family was waiting to see if Kroger would respond to the lawsuit by the kind of deadline that was um, set, I think July 14th. They didn't, The Kroger has, has barely even acknowledged this at all. All they said is like in the Washington Post article, we can't comment on ongoing litigation. And, and, and the family is just like desperately wanting them to acknowledge the horror that happened here and say that they're gonna fix it, but they're just treating it like any other sort of legal matter that you know they can kind of push under the rug, let the courts kind of do what they do, maybe offer a payout at the end of it, but not actually say anything publicly about it. And it's um, incredibly damaging to the family to not have that recognition for their son from the company that he gave so many years to of his life to. And so that litigation is moving, um, you know, but in the meantime, um, it is these these um, you know folks who are working with the Justice for Evan Coalition, the Stop um, Workplace Bullying Coalition, who today have organized kind of a national day of action, um, which again you can find the locations to that on the Justice for Evan pages. But like there are protests happening at state houses around the country to demand people acknowledge this, address this, and make sure that what happened to Evan never happens again to anybody else. We can, make, we can make that happen. I know that we're looking around the world right now and it feels like everything sucks and everything's on fire, and, and, and it does and it is, but we can fix this. This is something we can fix. This does not have to happen in this country or anywhere in the world. We can make sure that people like Evan never endure this type of torture and that people step in if they are and that the people who are doing that are held accountable. Well, Max, thanks for sharing this story with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. I appreciate you. And we will have more Rising right after this. Stick around. Nicholas Sirez lives in Dnipro, Ukraine. He is from New Orleans originally, but bought an apartment in Dnipro, where he moved with his Ukrainian fiance four months ago. They decided to live in the city because they found the people nice and the area to be peaceful, according to Reason magazine. 
Then, in the middle of the night on March 3rd, he woke up to hear that the nuclear power plant was under attack. Sirez said that he has been in a constant battle between whether he and his fiance should stay or should they leave. For the past week, he said his life has been, quote, let's go, let's not go. Journalist and co-founder of PalomaMedia.com, Nancy Rommelman, spoke to Cerez about what it's like to live under siege. She joins us now to discuss. Welcome, Nancy. Hey, thanks for having me. Yes, we're so glad you could join us. Uh, and tell us you know, where you are, or as, as close to where you are right now as you want to yeah. say. You're in Ukraine. Can you share uh, your, your journey there and how long you've been there? Yeah, I'm in Lviv, uh, so that's in the western part of the country. I'm about 70 kilometers from the Polish border. I've been here about five days. I had to cross over from Poland. That was a bit of an adventure, <laughs> but I got here. Let's see how I, if I can get out. Um, but yeah, I've been here, and I and I, I interviewed um, that gentleman the first night I got here when I was still in Warsaw. I heard about his story and got him on the phone. And he told me what it was like, essentially, you know, knowing that a the nuclear power plant that is, you know, within an hour's drive is on fire, but there's a curfew, so you can't leave your house or you're not supposed to. I mean, this is just maddening. And um, so then he, he told me a little bit more about what it's been like in this country since, uh, since February 24th, when um, Russia decided that they, you know, they needed to invade. Yeah, what has what has it been like? What what did he tell you? Well, he said it's been incredibly stressful. Uh, nobody's sleeping. You know, he's up at three o'clock in the morning trying to get what news he can. And you know, his his fiance is Ukrainian. He was previously married to a Ukrainian, so you know, he has some experience in the country. His mother-in-law is in her sixties and doesn't want to leave her home. I've got to tell you, I'm I'm here in Lviv. Everyone here, especially because Lviv is not has not under attack and, you know, cross figures it won't be, people don't want to leave their home. And you know what they also want to do? They want to fight. And they are fighting. I mean, everybody has pretty much has a new career now, which is fighting for their country. Um, in any case, in, the, in, this, in this gentleman's case, he just was so trying to figure out how to get people to safety. Um, and yet... They figure right now they're just going to stay where they are. Then uh, that that might be the safest place for them. So maybe it is, maybe it's not. Is is there any kind of um, uh, conscription that you're aware of? Is it that going on in, in the part of the country you're in as well? I, I know that Zelensky has called for all sort of able-bodied men yes. to 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 join the fight. What's going on where you are? Yes. So 18 to 60 across the country, you are not allowed to leave the country. I, I actually was uh, when I was in Poland waiting to get on a train to come to Ukraine. I saw a lot of um, refugees that had just come off and it was just all women, children and older men, no young men whatsoever. So you actually mm. can't leave the country. You actually are not required. But the volunteerism is insane. I spoke with someone. There's a new uh, article up on Reason Today. I spoke with a, a young IT engineer and he's like, you know, I'm in the reserve and they might call me, but there's so many people volunteering that they probably won't also, I'm better used here doing IT. You know, the country really wants us to keep the country going, keep the economy going, keep things as normal mm -hmm. as we can. So they're, they're very open to using people's strengths where they belong. But I've got to tell you, people are just in the streets. The roadblocks are being manned by basically, you know, civilians they've all decided we are going to protect our homeland and they are i mean everyone it's just a full a full effort 
to keep things keep you Ukraine safe uh, for its for its citizens. And, and do the do the people of Ukraine have do they have a lot of weapons? Do they have does everybody have a rifle under their floorboards or something? <laughs> Well, they were, you know, I don't know exactly who, but I do know in many parts of the country they were given um, said semi-automatic weapons. It's sort of like, you know, you would go down to the 7-Eleven and get your Slurpee or something. They now, they now wow. have uh, weapons, um, and they, you know, they're going to have to learn how to use them. Um, I forgot the other, the first part of your question. Yeah, I was just asking if if they already had them, but you're saying they're be, being given out. They do, and they're also just building them. I mean, you've all seen the stories of, you know, the everybody's making Molotov cocktails. They're making mm -hmm. these things called uh, hedgehogs, which are these sort of, you know, crossed metal things that you stick in the road so the cars can't go. I mean, I've passed, there's lots and lots of roadblocks around where I am, and it's made of everything, you know, sticks. And and, and then I've walked, you know, concrete and stuff too. And, you know, the children, I'm staying with someone, her 12-year-old, the schools are closed, but she goes to school every day and they make nets for the soldiers, you know, to to kind of camouflage. It really is a, a wow. an all-out effort uh, to to protect people. And what else are they doing around the city? I I saw that Lviv is uh, kind of wrapping up a lot of statues and otherwise trying to take care of some cultural artifacts. Like, yes. what other preparations so I, are being made for an attack? Well, I I can't. I probably shouldn't say, and I probably don't know a whole lot about it. I was in Lviv proper yesterday. I'm, I'm a little bit outside of the city right now. And they they have, you know, they've got some beautiful churches. I was in St. Andrews, which is a, you know, 15th century church. They're, so they're, they're kind of putting wood over um, some of the windows to protect it. But I have to say, in the streets, it looked sort of normal. I mean, you haven't had aggression here. You had people at cafes. I mean, I walked into a store. But I also today, you know, I went to a refugee center. I, I brought I bought some stuff to them and, and, and met some women that had come from across the country. You know, one's mother's house had been bombed, a boy walking a dog in front. Just walking civilians was killed because they are shooting at... At, at civilians, um, I think I remember the, the, the first part of your question, Robbie, was like, do they have weapons? Do they have enough weapons? I got to tell you, every, every single person says to me, please tell your country, we can do this on our own. We have people, but we need weapons. I was sitting with the mm -hmm. mayor of this province where I am yesterday, and he's like, we don't need bodies. We need weapons. That's fascinating. Uh, yeah, so it, it must be, you know, horrifying to see this beautiful art, architecture, the, a, a country with such a vibrant, you know, culture being, you know, slowly destroyed from one corner to the other by these in, invading forces. Are there a lot of, uh, there are a lot of refugees where you're staying and are, are they, they're trying to get, you know, into Poland and other places? Well, when I, so I, I think it's over 1.5 million now. Uh, I did see a bunch uh, getting into Poland, and I have to tell you, I mean, the women I, I interviewed today that I was hanging out with, I gave them some stuff, they literally came with a backpack, like a little child's backpack. That's all they had, because they were just, they were literally fleeing, you know, people being shot in the street. Um, I don't, I guess people are passing through Lviv, they really are trying to get to Poland, but I will also tell you that a lot of people I've spoken to saying, we're not leaving. No, mm. we're not leaving. And they can completely understand if you wanna get your, your wife or your children or your older folks. But even a lot of the women here, they're like, nope, I am staying here and I am defending my country. They are very, very adamant about that. 
And your, your reference to the Church of St. Andrew is, is, a, is a reminder of some of the other uh, tragedies that are associated with all, with all wars. Because you know, the legend is St. Andrew, you know, the brother of St. Peter, apostle of Christ, traveled to the Ukrainian, you know, what became the Ukrainian region you know, during his lifetime. And, that, and that's what that church is named after. And maybe in post we can put up some portraits of it, but it's just this breathtakingly beautiful artifact. And to think that it, it might just be leveled. It's, it, it really is, you know, that's exactly right. I, I walked in there yesterday and I was like, oh my, oh my God, that this, that this could be. And what, for, and what a waste and for what? And for what? Right, to survive you know, this long. And... That's, that's the other thing everybody is saying. It's like, we're, the, it's just lies and we're just here trying to live our lives. You know, we're, we don't want this war. Is, is there a sense or an awareness among, you know, the people you're interacting with, Ukrainians, that, you know, it, that it's, you know, it's not likely that the U.S. is going to intervene to the level that Zelensky, for instance, has requested with the no-fly zone, with us actually, you know, shooting down Russian planes? We're extremely unlikely to do that, you know, and—, and Yep. Most people yep. accept that that's not a line we can cross because of the risk of World War Three. Do the people you talk to, are they understanding that, you know, like the cavalry to that extent is not coming, even though we're trying to do all these, you know, other things to to corner Putin and, and dissuade him from doing this? Well, I'll tell you a couple of things I hear over and over and over. Number one, what I already said, they, they don't even want American bodies on the ground here. They want weapons. Number two, they're extremely grateful to the United States for the weapon we already have provided over the years and are just questioning more. They, they think the sanctions are great, but what Americans don't know, and I'm actually going to write about this today, is that Almost all of Russia is extremely poor. 70% of them still, they don't have indoor plumbing. They, they, they don't even have gas. They sell natural gas, but they don't have it themselves. So the sanctions are not going to affect the average Russian person because they don't have the things that we're holding back. Um, and they, they, they just want to be able to fight for themselves. That's, that's, that's the message. I just, it just, just help us fight. Help us fight, but not with bodies, just with weapons. It's just the constant message that I'm getting. Right. Well, Nancy, thanks so much for taking some time to join us. Thank you for having me. Right. Up next, we'll discuss new polling on Russia's energy, on the, on the ban on Russian energy and President Biden's handling of the situation. Stay tuned for that. A new change research poll finds overwhelming support for U.S. action against Russia on just about everything except military intervention. The survey conducted March 1st through 7th among roughly 1,500 likely voters found approximately 90 percent support for things like economic sanctions against Russia, providing weapons to Ukraine, and sanctioning Russian President Vladimir Putin personally. The poll also found that 85% of respondents approve of blocking Russia's oil and gas exports to the U U.S. That includes majorities of Democrats and Republicans. Joining us now to discuss, senior pollster at Change Research, Nancy Zadunkowitz. Welcome. Good morning. So, uh, Nancy, how do, we, how do we parse out uh, the, the kind of social pressure that people are feeling to say that they support this and the kind of nagging feeling that they would really rather not pay, you know, six dollars 
a gallon gas. Or do you think this is genuine support of the Ukrainian resistance and that people are, you know, you know, fully willing to make personal sacrifices uh, to support their self-defense? That's a great question. Uh, there is such an overwhelming reaction to what's happening right now in Ukraine. And so when we ask in surveys, what can we do in response as Americans, as you just showed, there is overwhelming support for all of these actions. People are just eager to do something or to support something in a case where you know, there's maybe not much that at the end of the day we're going to be able to do. And so, as you said, you have to ask the question, is this just about expressing any desire to do something or will they really uh, draw the line at a certain point when they start to internalize the costs? We see that almost 90% of people say that the price of everyday goods is uh, in a poor and not so good place right now. So we asked folks uh, what they were willing to bear when we specified that there would be costs involved with this. And we said, uh, would you impose aggressive sanctions uh, if you knew uh, that uh, it would mean that gas prices go up in the US or should we impose sanctions, uh, but we shouldn't impose any sanctions that would lead to higher gas prices in the US. And we do see that the support does drop from 85% supporting blocking oil exports to the US from Russia to 71%. But that's still 71% of voters. Yeah, that's a lot. I mean, on any political question, because of how uh, you know one side or the other our politics in the U.S. are, it's unanimity. If you're getting like 70, 80, 90 percent, that's that shows to me, or suggests to me at least, yeah, that there really is a quite a considerable desire among like almost all of the American people to do this, uh, even if the consequences are bad. Now, of course, I would expect the consequences for us in terms of the gas prices, I would expect, per, you know, perhaps the support would go down if, if people start if, as those prices go up and people start suffering it for a long enough time. But but still, it's it's pretty telling to me that, you you know, you can't get 80 percent of people to agree on anything, <laughs> anything remotely political. Absolutely. And so you do actually still see the majority of Republicans even. These are the same Republicans who are in our surveys saying that they're the most angry about the price of gas, the ones that are the most inclined to want to hold the administration's feet to the fire and make them politically responsible for the price of gas, that not only were they in theory supportive of this, that 84% of them in theory said that this was a good idea, but still a 53% majority would support this even when we say that it will lead to higher gas prices in the U.S. And a new News Nation poll found that while 83% had unfavorable views of Putin, uh, when asked who is a stronger leader, Putin or President Biden, only 31% said Biden and 29% said Putin. Another 31% said neither was a stronger leader and 10% were not sure. So 52% of voters said they did not trust Biden much or at all to achieve a peaceful resolution in Ukraine. And so, you know, what, what did you take away from these numbers? And what do you think people mean by strength? Is right. that a, That's it, my question. Is that a value judgment free description? I, I, you know, it, I suppose you could say it's strength in a very narrow sense to be able to kind of unilaterally 
take your country into the, uh, a like reckless a invasion. Sense. Right, strengthen a right. medieval. <laughs> right. So is, is some of that what's going on, or what was the partisan breakdown there? Well, it was really interesting to see that, because on the one hand, you have this idea of might is right, and uh, Putin is a great example of that, but that style of leadership is clearly not uh, being rated by Americans as uh, a strength. Um, you know, voters obviously do not have a uh, favorable opinion of Vladimir Putin, especially not right now. And so you're not going to see a lot of folks even probably signing on to say that he is a tough leader. Um, and uh, uh, same with, with Joe Biden, that has never been one of his uh, strong attributes. I went back and looked at a survey that we did during one of the debates. And we asked people, it wasn't Vladimir Putin, but it was uh, you know Donald Trump. So which of these uh, you know two leaders most uh, uh, personifies different attributes and one was toughness. And that was one of the places where Donald Trump had uh, the largest uh, advantage over Joe Biden. It's never been something that people uh, particularly felt described him. Uh, when it came to the, the next point, though, about uh, you know, trusting to achieve a peaceful resolution, you know, in, in some ways, you know, the, the cat's out of the bag. I'm surprised that that number isn't lower because... Right. Right, because you know, peace has ended. The violence has begun. Vladimir Putin seems intent on it, and there's really only so much that America can do, or any country can do. Right. To it's try to news. resolve the situation between the two countries. Right. right. It's almost weirdly good news for Biden in that sense that it's that that many people would still have some faith in a peaceful resolution. Mm -hmm. Although ultimately, there's going to be a peaceful resolution one way or another, even if it's a nuclear winner. <laughs> right, That's peaceful peace, peace through extinction. Peace through of extinction. Species. Peace yeah. through extinction. Peaceful for the uh, the cockroaches that survive right. and, the, and the rats They'll that are going to evolve into thinking creatures. Um, yeah, I don't know that. Right, Biden does not. I, I, he does not project strength in a way that I'm not even sure that's necessarily a negative. Like he's not right. He's not. Uh, myopically tough sound, or he, he doesn't uh, persuasively intimidate, I guess, in a way, if, if that's what is meant by strength and toughness. I don't know how much of an attribute, you know, that, that really is. But, I, you know, how much are the, these poll, poll questions like this and others, they are, to some degree, you know, value I mean, we can we pick them apart sometimes when we do these polls. We go, well, what do they actually mean by that? What's the some of these polls have objective answers, and it doesn't like your opinion doesn't matter. Right. It's uh, you know how how much do you find how easy is it to manipulate these responses based on the exact wording of questions like these? Oh, I think it's very uh, it's very easy, and that's why you uh, have to be really careful about the way that you word your questions. Um, so, you know, talking about a peaceful uh, resolution or pitting uh, Putin against um, Biden um, is uh, could, could perhaps be um, misleading. I even thought about asking about a no-fly zone on this survey and mm -hmm. realized that might not be, it would require a little bit more effort um, and it might be misleading whatever the responses are because as you mentioned before, there's such a desire to say yes to anything that we can do 
and that it probably requires a little bit more education in your survey to fully uh, lay out. Right. Well, on that question, you're right. You have to explain to people that a no-fly zone is not a magic protective bubble that appears around the country, but is actually us shooting at Russian planes. Right. So, right. yeah, it's a... Right. Would you like Russia to stop flying over Ukraine and bombing? Yeah, I would like that. Yes, yes. I vote yes. Yeah. Would you like to shoot down right. Russian planes and right. perhaps trigger Should World Vladimir War III? Should Vladimir no longer right. be the leader of Russia, and instead it's a prosperous liberal democracy that uh, <laughs> trades, you know, its gas with us and doesn't do any domestic civil liberty suppression? Yes, I vote for that. All right. <laughs> Problem solved. Well, you can find more about the News Nation survey and more at On Balance with Leland Vitter weekdays at 8, 8 p.m., 7 central. And next, we'll take a detailed look into Ukraine's offer to Russian soldiers who desert their post with economic professor Brian Kaplan. Uh, but we want to thank Nancy Zadunkowitz for being with us. So thank you so much. Good to be with you. In his recent blog post titled Make Desertion Fast, Professor of Economics Brian Kaplan takes a deeper dive into Ukraine's offer to Russian soldiers who desert their post. Amnesty plus 5 million rubles. That's about 48,000 American dollars, which is probably several years pay for a young Russian worker. Kaplan says that on the surface, this might sound like a sweet deal, but on reflection, it's anything but. Here to tell us more is Professor of Economics at George Mason University, Brian Kaplan. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. Right, and so this Ukrainian offer includes jail time. Do we know how much jail time? So actually, so uh, I, I talked to a native Russian speaker who said that that original statement by the Ukrainian government was mistranslated. So you are supposed to actually get amnesty. Oh. The real problem is that who knows whether the Ukrainian government will actually pay you given the situation. And also, if you can't get out of Ukraine and Russia, again, who knows what's going to become of you. So you've come up with a superior plan. Can you tell us a little bit about what you have envisioned? Right. Well, the most important part is that you don't get amnesty in Ukraine. You get amnesty in the EU. Right. So you know, obviously, if you're a Russian soldier and you desert in Ukraine, you know, even if Ukraine wins, you could easily get captured by Russians and wind up before a firing squad. You don't want that. It's just not much of an offer. Like, I'm going to go and spend my $48,000 in the middle of a war zone, assuming I don't get captured. Much better deal if you can go to the EU where you can spend your money in peace. But you also could never go back home. Uh, right? That's I mean, correct, he's... although a <laughs> number of Russians would be very happy to never be able to go home as long as they could have citizenship in the EU is, I think, quite high. Uh, it is much higher income in the EU, obviously a much safer environment. So, yeah, I mean, again, of course, this doesn't mean that every single Russian soldier is going to take it. I mean, really, the goal is to just start flipping some people and hope to start a stampede. That's really what you're going for is if you can go and get the first thousand guys to go, then the next thousand guys are going to say, wait a second, that sounds like a pretty good deal. And if you can get a whole lot going, then most of the risk goes away because they're spending more time watching whether you're leaving than actually even hunting people down. And I I think you suggested uh, or maybe maybe I'm mind reading this, but I think you suggested that what if, you know, the first number of however many troops it is, the, the payment they get is higher in, in order to, oh, yes. you know, induce the early start, and then you start lowering it based on, so then you, then you do create some kind of, ideally you create some of flood, so people want to want to desert at the higher rate than the lower rate. Yeah, exactly. When a few people are leaving, they can easily watch every single person, but if it's a lot of people leaving, it really does turn into chaos, and who watches the watchers? 
Yes, so there is a standard tactic in finance of the two-tier tender offer where when you want to get people to sell, you say the first people sell get a really sweet deal, and if you wait too long, then you don't get that deal. I'd say something very similar would be a great idea to try here. Not saying it's going to work for sure, but I mean, compared to the costs of what people are spending, you know, as, as I was showing, like the actual cost of just bribing Russians the dessert turns out to be modest compared to what we're already doing. And, and also Seems like the, they should offer more than in that case, right? Yeah. I mean, if you yeah. can buy anything, I mean, everything and everyone seems to be up for sale to a degree. So it's like just throw more money at them and put down the weapons. Yeah, I mean, if you, you know, like a million euros for the first 10,000 to go to, right. to, to the earth. And just think about the propaganda yeah. opportunity, too. There's this bunch of guys saying, I mean, of course, the first ones to show up better be better have no families back in Russia because there could be retaliation. But right, yeah, least, right. You don't need to, but you're not going to put 10,000 people on TV anyway. You're going to find the most charismatic guys with nothing to lose who really want to go and say what they think. And they're waving their fat sacks around. Seems like a pretty great piece of media, whatever else. But also, they wouldn't necessarily know, you know, back behind Russian lines, whether the person was was killed or missing or deserted if they just mm -hmm. if they just slip off. And I'd, I'd add to your idea, you know, pay them for whatever jeeps, tanks or planes that they, 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 they bring along with them. In fact, we really do that. Yeah. So. We, we've talked yeah, you know, so we've talked a bunch so there's a famous case of a MiG pilot who deserted to the U.S. back in the 80s. There's a whole book about him, actually. Uh, so the, uh, the you know, plane is the one where it's really easy to desert, although they're also going to know who you are, I think. Uh, the other stuff, yeah, driving a tank all the way through hundreds of miles of Ukraine in order to, to hand it over to the EU, that sounds pretty fanciful. You just look at where the troops are, they're too far, but uh, you know, for a person on foot or you know, like a Jeep, yeah, it's doable. Yeah. You know, we've talked a bunch on the show about Robert Smalls, the Confederate era uh, enslaved mm -hmm. guy who stole the USS planter or the CSS planter and turned it into the USS planter, turned it over to Union troops. But your so your your idea also raises interesting questions about immigration. And we had a heated conversation mm -hmm. about immigration yesterday. And you know, from the perspective of some more kind of nativist elements in our politics, they might say, well we don't want all these uh, Russians you know, flooding into our economy. We're going we're to have all these freeloaders. How are we going to support them? When in reality, they're going to be supporting you. You know, these are 18 to 22-year-old, obviously, you know, physically healthy people who are going, who have, you know, 40 or 50 years of economic productivity ahead of them that they're going to then be pouring into the EU economy. What, what's, what's your response to people who say, well, we don't need more uh, you know, migration into the EU. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the maximal scenario where you get every single Russian dessert, which, yeah, that's crazy. But if, you know, even in that scenario, it's 200,000 guys. It's like nothing. Mm -hmm. So it's really pretty odd to be getting paranoid about something like that. Uh, so, I mean, but like, you know, really the more important issue is it's during war that you realize how valuable human beings are. The reason why Ukraine has a lot to fear is that the Russians outnumber them three to one in terms of population. You know, there's this line from Game of Thrones, you know, excuse me, I don't know a lot about war, but isn't the side with more people usually the one that wins? And yeah, yeah that's how it works. Right. And what is immigration right. about? It's about going and moving population, the people that are going to be causing problems for you and putting them onto your side of the ledger. It's very smart. It, 
how in the I don't know if you how much you know about this, but in the history of warfare, is it common to attempt you know the tactic you're describing to pay people to induce them to desert? Obviously, there's you know bribes paid to stop right Genghis Khan's army from attacking your village or the kind of tribute scenario, but actually just trying to induce the the enemy army to desert not through like fear or terrorism, but like take this pile of money. Um, how, how com- I'm sure that's that's been done to varying degrees, but it, but it, maybe it's not so much in modern warfare, I guess, that we've heard about it. Right. I can't think of any really good examples. There is something very different about this situation than most ones in history, which is that there is a side with a very good reputation. Like no one is worried that if you get into the EU, they're going to go and shoot you or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if EU, EU promises to give you money, they're going to give you the money. So it's um, you know it might not be the gold standard of reliability. It's at least the silver standard of reliability. During most wars, you were thinking, gee, if I desert, the other side will probably just kill me anyway. What's the point? This is a great chance to just leverage your reputation for not being such a bad guy compared to the other side, right? And it's also one where if you're worried, well, is the other side going to go and retaliate? Like you know, who's going to re- who's going to desert to Putin because he offers you some money? Like, like, you'd have to be pretty stupid to think that's a good deal. Even if he offers you ten million dollars, so like, what are the odds this guy's going to pay me? He's probably just going to go and put me in a POW camp or worse. So no thanks. And there is a historical poetry to it in the sense that it was it was Europe in the Middle Ages that really pioneered mercenary armies right like that, that's right. how all of their wars were fought for hundreds of years right we're just straight up hiring soldiers and you did you definitely had case after case of wars flipping because one knight was outbid you know or right. got, got, a, got a better right. bid that's from another from another king yeah in, in a neighboring area and they would constantly be playing off well, each then other when you couldn't pay your mercenary army anymore then they would just destroy your they, they would just lose your villages and go, move on yeah. go look up right. the sacking and burning right. of rome it, it happened. Or even later, in the Thirty Years' yeah. War, right? There's lots mm-hmm. of that in uh, in the middle the 1600s. Yeah, you don't pay your mercenaries, they, they turn around and burn you down. Yeah. No. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, what's worth pointing out is uh, since the initial announcement from the Ukrainians, I haven't heard anything else. I mean, I, so we can, right now, I could be wrong, but it looks more like a publicity stunt just to get some headlines right. rather right. than a serious <laughs> tactic. But this is a tactic that really could work. It would be very cheap compared to other things that people are doing. And the squeamishness that countries are likely to feel about this really is misplaced. It's not like Russia could easily go and do something similar and flip it the other way. That's just not realistic. Who's going to trust them? It'd be, it'd be amazing to make it a precedent, too, that in the future, if you are conscripted and all of a sudden sent into battle, just, just we'll pay you not we'll, to fight. We'll pay you not great. to fight. It'll be a, the yeah. greatest use of money. Yes. And the, and the other countries would have to then like, yeah. factor that in. Yeah. Because yeah. then it would be harder you, you to conscript this World War II German people. soldiers desperately trying to surrender to Americans rather than Soviets. Mm-hmm. You want to have that reputation. But if the reputation is even better, it's not like you go to a better POW camp, but rather you immediately have a good life and can kiss goodbye the horror of war. That's the reputation you want. Who's going to fight against that? Well, Brian Kaplan, that's why I wanted to have you on. You're, you come up with creative solutions to problems or problems that people don't often think of based on economic incentives. So thank you so much for joining us. Very good to be here. Thanks a lot.
Now, tomorrow on Rising, Emma Camp will join us to talk about that famous New York Times viral op-ed that everyone has been yelling about on Twitter. We're going to talk to her. We're going to yell at her the whole time. We're not going <laughs> to yell at her. I'm supportive of her. You guys can yell at her if you want, but uh, let's not scare her away. I, she, and, and, and she's actually coming to work for Reason Magazine, where I'm also employed, so I'm going to meet her for the first her. time in this, in this format. It will be funny. <laughs> I'm not going to yell. Kim, you're going to yell? I know. I don't even know what you guys are talking about. Oh, so, man. Like oh, many man. people, I, I'm sure I don't know about this viral op-ed. So I what, avoid, what was it I even avoided, about? I avoided it for two days, and it just kept showing really? up. And I finally was she, like, she wrote I'll about her as a situation. We well, we'll talk about it tomorrow. But she wrote about not feeling able to express herself on a on, on her, at her campus, you know, because of her views and feeling. Uh, intimidated by, and, by progressive liberals not to, blue to checks, speak. Bull, blue checks bullied her for a day or two. And then they, sh- yeah. then they showed everyone right. why people feel that way yes. by doing that thing. So, yes. anyway. Also, right. a- Andrew Feldman and Denise Long are in for our rising panel. We're going to talk about the criticism surrounding MSNBC's Joy Reid that she's getting for her coverage of the war against Ukraine. No criticism against Joy Reid. Who would have thought, right? (laughs) All right, and for you podcast lovers, guess what? Rising is now available everywhere you listen to podcasts. So do us a favor, give us a five-star rating because that helps uh, people find the show. So be sure to do that. Look at that. Don't we look great? That's our 1987 version. That looks so cool. (laughs) I love it. Yeah, I love it. I love it. The the vibe shift has taken us back to The vibe shift. I've wanted the vibe shift. (laughs) I embrace the vibe shift. Take me. All right. See you then. Bye, guys.